I wonder what you think of the exercise of authority and power. Uh, I wonder what your gut reaction is to those, those words and concepts. Maybe you uh, kind of recoil in concern. Or, or maybe you lean in wondering who is exercising authority and power. Perhaps that's what it all comes down to for you. The identity of the person exercising authority and power. Perhaps that makes all the difference in the world. Authority and power were used in varying ways this past week, weren't they? Employers and employees exercised authority and power this past week. So did world leaders. So did teachers. So did moms and dads. In fact, many of us in this room this past week exercised authority and power in one way or another. The challenge for us is, is using that authority and power, are we using it for good? As well as humbly submitting to those who are in authority over us. There is probably a part of us that's concerned with how those over us will exercise their authority and power. There should be a part of us that is concerned with how we will exercise authority and power too. What if, what if there was one person to whom you could entrust your whole life to, who would not fail to exercise his authority and power in such a way that guarantees your highest good? There is such a person. There is only one such person, and his name is Jesus. Luke chapter 7, the passage of Scripture that we'll be studying together this morning, reveals Jesus' authority, his identity, and his power. This chapter ought to persuade us that Jesus is worthy of our lives, worthy of our loyalty, and worthy of our love. And if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Luke chapter 7 beginning on page 863. 863. And while you're turning there, uh, allow me to remind us of some of the background of Luke's gospel and what we've studied so far. The Bible, as you may know, is one grand story of God's love for sinners. Shortly after God created the world including the first man and the first woman, sin entered into this world. The first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, they decided that they would set up their own kingdom and live as their own rulers when they decided to rebel against God's good command. You see, God had promised them an eternal life of joy and fellowship with Him if they would trust and obey Him. God provided abundantly for them by setting them in paradise and permitting them to eat from every tree in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God promised Adam and Eve that should they disobey their sin, that's what sin is, it's disobedience against God, their sin would be punished by death. And when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the forbidden tree, they expressed their desire to decide what was good and what was evil, thus rejecting God's gracious garden kingdom. 
Each and every one of us here this morning have revealed that we are children of Adam and Eve by doing the same. We, too, have revealed in our lives that we want to be the ones who decide what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. We, just like Adam and Eve, also know that God was true to his word. Death entered into our world as a consequence of sin. It is the just punishment of sin. But the good news for us is that on the day that Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, he made a promise. God promised that he would send a son to defeat sin and death. And the rest of the Old Testament is about God persuading his people that he would send a son, that he was going to keep his promise. He's going to keep his promise of sending a son, his son, to rescue sinners from the consequences due to their sin. And the purpose of Luke's gospel is to announce that Jesus Christ has come to restore that great garden kingdom that Adam lost. And that his kingdom is going to be even more glorious than Adam's kingdom because it cannot be lost. The question that Luke's gospel confronts us with is this. Will we receive the king of the kingdom of God? Will we believe in him? See him for who he reveals himself to be? And will we love him with an unashamed love? We're going to study Luke chapter 7 in three sections under three headings. If you're taking notes this morning, these three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. First, the authority of the king. Second, the identity of the king. And third, the power of the king. Let's begin with our first point, the authority of the king. And here we're, we're looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. And as we begin to consider this first point, the authority of the king, there's, there's something I want to point out about each of these sections in our text today. All three sections have a thesis and a paranesis. Let me explain. A thesis is a, a proposition to be proved and a, a paranetic statement. Paranesis is an ethical response. So the thesis of Luke chapter 7 verses 1 through 17 is that Jesus has authority over death. Jesus has authority over death. In, in two scenes, we see Jesus restore the health of a man who is dying. That's verses 1 to 10. And raise a man from the dead, verses 11 through 17. The paranesis, the, the ethical response that these two scenes call forth from us is faith in Jesus Christ. I think we'll see that here as we read even this first scene. Take a look at verses 1 through 10. Read Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. 
But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This story is really straightforward and surprising. In verse 1, Luke reminds us that Jesus has just finished his sermon on the plain. And with that reminder, we should not fail to remember that in that very sermon, Jesus made an authoritative claim. He made the authoritative claim that he is the great son of man. Jesus claimed the title given to the great messianic figure in Daniel 7, to whom was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Daniel 7, 14. And what do we have here? We have a Gentile, a soldier, a man from the nations, who glorifies Jesus through faith in him. This centurion has done much to commend himself to Jesus or So those elders believe his care and his compassion for his sick servant commends him, verse 3. His love for Jesus' home nation, the nation of Israel, commends him. He has even built a synagogue for them, verse 5. This centurion's uh, centurion's servant is sick, and these elders who are coming to Jesus argue that this is what makes him worthy before Jesus. But does it? I don't think so. And interestingly enough, neither does the centurion. Plant your eyes there in verses 6 and 7. The centurion, he sends friends to meet Jesus. And what is the message that they deliver on his behalf? To put it succinctly, I am not worthy. I don't presume that I'm anyone special. Everything that I have done for the Lord and for his people does not make me worthy. And if he is not worthy then what is the only conclusion that we can draw? Well, that he's unworthy. And yet, he has a most remarkable faith. A faith like that of Abraham and found in a Gentile, no less. This is surprising. He knows and believes that Jesus has the authority to command disease and the threat of death to flee the body of a sick servant. He draws a parallel between his authority as a centurion and Jesus' authority to speak and for things to take place. According to this centurion, all that Jesus has to do is just simply utter a word and he will be made well. And verse 9, you notice there, recounts Jesus' recognition of of this centurion's amazing faith. And that was all that the word that was needed for the messengers. When the messengers return and the friends return home, that they found him made well there in verse 10. Jesus really does have the authority to push back the threat of death. And we ought to have faith like that faith-filled centurion. And like that centurion, we should appeal to Jesus to heal physically and spiritually those who are close to us, 
recognizing that he has that authority. We ought to believe that he has that authority. We ought to believe that he is delighted to use that authority to display his mercy and grace. Jesus does not merely have authority to push back death. He has the authority to overturn death. Take a look there at verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood, stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This scene is a, a natural complement to the previous scene, but it is achieved by way of contrast. Uh, one of the main characters in the previous scene was a wealthy man. But one of the main characters in this scene is a destitute woman. This poor woman had lost her husband, and she lost her only son. In the first century, that meant that she would have lost any hope of income and sustenance with the death of her one and only son. But another one and only son has come to overturn the effects of sin and death. And he is standing in the way of this funeral. And let's dispense with the silly idea that those in the first century were stunted in their knowledge of scientific matters. This man really was dead, and everyone knew it. The reality is that more people in the first century knew what a dead man was than those of us here in the 21st century. They interacted with death and the dead far more often than you and I do. Many people in our setting die in hospitals and health homes. In the first century, more people died in their actual homes, and they died on the street in view of so many. In so many ways, we are kind of quarantined from death until we're ready for the viewing and the funeral. Those in the first century were well acquainted with death. So many present could not have been so badly mistaken. This man really was dead, and this scene has all the markings of a sober funeral procession. Another compatible but contrasting facet of this scene with the previous scene is bound up with Jesus' authoritative word. Where the previous scene did not record Jesus' authoritative word to heal the centurion servant, his sick servant, this scene does record Jesus' authoritative word. Jesus' first words come in verse 13, and they're addressed directly to the dead man's mother. At first, I don't know about you, but I was shocked at Jesus' words. He said to a grieving mother who's lost her only son, 
Do not weep. You should really put it stronger than that. Jesus actually commands her not to weep. Now, before we get upset with Jesus, consider again how verse 13 unfolds. We read when the Lord saw her. When who saw her? When the Lord saw her. When Luke calls Jesus Lord, we need to remember what he has in mind. He has the God who rules over life and death in mind. This Lord of creation, this Lord of life, he has compassion on her. Jesus is not unsympathetic. Rather, he too is grieved by death. For death entered into this world as a consequence of sin. Here before Jesus, lay a tangible presentation of what rebellion against the holy God has ushered into our world. The wages of sin is death. And with this command from the Lord, we should remember what our Lord promised in Isaiah 25.8. Isaiah 25.8, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. So you see, when Jesus tells this grieving mother, do not weep, he is telling her, your God is here to wipe away the tears from your eyes. And Jesus, he touches the buyer, that stretcher, the cart, that the dead man's body was being carried on, as if to stop the funeral possession. Death will go no further here. And so with great love, Jesus displays his authority to overturn death with a simple command. Just like the centurion soldier believed he could, Jesus commands the man not simply to get up from the stretcher, but to get up from death. This woman's one and only son gets up from the dead in a manner not unlike Jesus. God's one and only most beloved son will get up from the dead three days after his death. And these two scenes conclude with people afraid and glorifying God. You see that there in verse 16. Those, they they seem kind of like two diametrically opposed responses. But this, I think, shows us that, that Luke's account has the texture of an authentic response to such a miraculous work. Who could really honestly expect kind of a uniform response to such a mighty work. Luke's account is an authentic account of the things that happened in Jesus' life and ministry. Notice, too, that these two scenes also conclude with people saying some remarkable things about Jesus. A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And those present, they spoke better than they knew. Jesus was a prophet, greater than all of the prophets who had gone before him. He had healed a man from a distance, like Elisha did with Naaman in 2 Kings 5. He had raised a widow's son, like Elijah did in 1 Kings 17. Jesus is the prophet that Moses promised the Lord would raise up in Deuteronomy 18. But he was more, too. He was God in the flesh, visiting his people. Those who uttered the words God has visited his people, in verse 16, they were probably simply meaning to echo what we read in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, 
when the Lord restored life to the famished land. They probably meant to say that God in His kindness has made His power and greatness known here on earth. But in the context of Luke's gospel, we know that an important point about Jesus is being made. God really has come and visited His people. He's really come to earth. Who else has authority over life and death but God? Jesus has power over life and death because He is God. The question is, do we see Jesus for who He is? Is His identity crystal clear in our minds? Well, to answer that question, let's turn now and consider our second point, the identity of the King. The identity of the King. And as we do, here we're going to read Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 34. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 34. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go, and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for them, not having been baptized by Him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. The, the thesis of, of these verses is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, promised by the Old Testament. He is the one that the entire Old Testament has been anticipating. And the, the parenthesis, how we are supposed to respond to this revealed reality is that we are to see Jesus as the Messiah, as our only hope and salvation. Interestingly enough, these verses begin with John's disciples really presenting evidence to John. They reported all the things that Jesus has done. 
You see, far from being a random collection of Jesus' works and words, the previous chapters have been anticipating answering John's question here. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Having heard about the deeds of Christ, what promised one was John thinking of? Could it be the one who was promised in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, who we're told would preach good news to the poor, like Jesus did in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, and chapter 6, verse 20? Or could he be the one who, according to Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, would open the eyes of the blind, unstop the ears of the deaf, make the lame leap like a deer, and cause tongues of mute to sing for joy, like Jesus did in Luke 4, and 5, and 6, and 7? These were the Old Testament promises concerning God's Messiah. And, and can I just offer what might at first, I think, seem to be a strange word of application on verse 20 and John's question? Do not be afraid to come to Jesus and say, who are you? Don't be afraid to honestly ask, are you the one who can save me? Friend, Jesus has an answer for you. And he's not afraid of your questions. If you don't feel like you know who Jesus is, then let me encourage you to pray and ask him to make himself known to you. Ask the friend or family member you came here with this morning to read the Bible with you. Investigate the question, who is Jesus? Children, youth, young adults, I especially want you to take that word of application to heart. You can ask questions about Jesus, about Christianity, about the Bible, about anything. You can ask me. You can ask your Sunday school teacher. You can ask your parents. One of the things that I, as a father, want most is an open and honest dialogue with my kids. I want them to feel like they can ask me anything. Ask honest and hard questions about my most deeply cherished beliefs. I want them to feel like they can even ask a question that might offend me. Because more than anything else, I want them to know and love the truth about Jesus. I want them to know Jesus' true identity. And sometimes you only get there by asking questions. So if, if you've had a question percolating in your mind for some time now, but you've been too afraid to ask, let me invite you to put me or your Sunday school teacher or your parents on the spot and ask that question. We'd love to talk with you about that. I know that I would. Before Jesus even responds, really answers John's question, we get verse 21 there. Take a look at verse 21. In that hour, so here the question comes and then this is what happens. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. See, Luke is asking us, do you see who Jesus is? Are you blind? Or do you see? We're supposed to see all of this evidence piling up and have clarity about Jesus' identity. Jesus works his words and his response to John make it abundantly clear that he is indeed the one who was promised. Jesus answers John's question by quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18, and Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. That's why we read from Isaiah 35 
earlier in the service. These were Old Testament promises concerning God's Messiah. In other words, Jesus answers John's question effectively by saying, Yes, John, I am that one. Will we see who Jesus is? Will we see and believe? Or will we refuse to see Jesus for who he is and be offended by him? Verse 23. For Jesus first hears, seeing clearly who he is, is linked to seeing clearly who John is. That's why Jesus asked that series of questions there in verses 24 to 26. When you went out to John, what did you go out to see? Let me tell you, Jesus says. You went out to see the one who God promised would come before me to prepare the way for my arrival. And Jesus here in these verses, he's quoting Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. And says basically, Malachi, you see, he was talking about John. I wonder if you noticed, too, the transition that takes place really through verses 24 to 35. Jesus begins speaking about John and his ministry. But he concludes by speaking about himself, the Son of Man. What's, what's the connection? The reality is, is that their ministries are indivisibly connected. Jesus' ministry, it comes as a consequence of John's. It could be no other way. And Jesus, he wants everyone to know it. This is part of what makes John so great. Jesus also says there's something special about John that needs to be recognized. John's a prophet, but he's a special prophet. Verse 26, no other prophet, you see, was the subject of prophecy. And no other prophet would so immediately prepare the way for the God of heaven to come to earth. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? John plays a pretty prominent, a great role in the course of redemptive history, doesn't he? John is great, but, verse 28, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, how how can that be? John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He proclaimed that the Messiah would come and did come. John's proclamation occurred before the completion of Jesus' work. John could only proclaim what Jesus would do. But all of those who live on the other side of the cross and resurrection can proclaim what Jesus has done. So brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to hear what Jesus is saying about John and what he's saying about you. What he is saying is that we occupy a greater place in the history of redemption because we can proclaim the inauguration of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. We can proclaim not simply that Jesus would come or has come. We can proclaim not simply that Jesus would die and be raised. More than this, we can proclaim that Jesus has lived and died and been raised from the grave. John is great, but the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We have the privilege, the great privilege of proclaiming our great Savior. So let's exert great effort to make His great name known. Those who correctly identify who Jesus is help others correctly identify who Jesus is. So who are you going to tell about Jesus this week? Who are you going to invite to church the next week? Who are you going to offer to read through a gospel with to introduce them to Jesus You can even cheat and read through Luke's gospel with them since we're studying it here at church. 
Let's honor our king and make him known by helping others correctly identify him. Now, there is something somewhat sad here in this section. Sadly, Luke points out that Jesus' hearers were unwilling to accept that John was the forerunner to whom the scriptures foretold. And as a consequence, they were unwilling to accept what Jesus is saying about himself. Jesus seems to know this as he reflects on what he calls this generation in verse 31. This is a description or a, a designation that Jesus will sometimes use to describe his contemporary unbelieving audience. This generation, according to Jesus, are like children who are unmoved by the news that reach their ears. They don't rejoice when joy is appropriate. They don't mourn when sorrow is suitable. This generation lacks the appropriate response to John's proclamation and Jesus' arrival. We see that in verses 33 and 34. They dismiss John and they ridicule Jesus. Perhaps it was because John and Jesus didn't fit the mold that they were expecting. John was dressed in an unusual attire. And Jesus, well, rather than taking up arms against the Roman authorities to free the Jewish people, he took his place among tax collectors and sinners. John was a different kind of prophet. And Jesus was a different kind of Messiah. Jesus' words, wisdom is justified by all her children at the end of verse 35. Simply an idiom which calls us to ask ourselves, are we wise? Are we children of wisdom? Have we correctly and clearly identified Jesus as our Savior and Messiah? Do we see John and Jesus and their role in God's plan of salvation? Those who see and believe in Jesus Christ prove to be wise in God's eyes by rightly identifying Jesus as the promised king. Well, having considered the authority and identity of the king, let's turn now and consider our third and final point, the power of the king, the power of the king. And as we do, let's read Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, 
but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In these verses, we learn that Jesus has the power to forgive us of our sins. That's the thesis. And the paranesis, our response to this good news about Jesus is that we give our hearts to him in love. These verses are really comprised of two parts. The first is the interaction that takes place between Jesus and Simon and the woman, sinful woman, in verses 36 to 39. The second is Jesus telling Simon a parable, then explaining its meaning and applying its meaning to them. Verses 40 to 50. As a whole, these events take place in the home of a Pharisee. But this so-called woman of the city interrupts this polite dinner party. Now let's just take a moment and, and kind of take in this contrast that's being set before us. Simon, a Pharisee, is an upstanding figure in the community. He's super religious and everyone admired him for his pursuit of righteousness. This woman, on the other hand, is described as a sinner. And her designation of being a woman of the city may imply that she was a prostitute. If nothing else, everyone knew her to be a great sinner. We know as much from what Simon says there in verse 39. And friends, may I just say, Jesus knows what kind of sinner you are. He, he knows, and he's not afraid of you. Jesus is not scared by our sins. In fact, Luke chapter 7, verse 34, just a few verses earlier, we read that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And since Jesus is a friend of sinners, we should be a friend of sinners too. I'm grateful that this congregation is a, a welcoming, generous, and gracious congregation I love to see you, brothers and sisters, run to the aid and the encouragement of those in need. And you know what that tells me? It tells me that you know your own need. And that you have taken to heart the wonderful truth that you've been welcomed by our wonderful Savior. Despite your sinfulness. Despite our sinfulness. There's, there's another contrast that we really should take in. How much this woman loved Jesus. And how little Simon loved him. See, Jesus, he treasured her tears. To him, they revealed just how much he was treasured in her heart. What about Simon? How did he reveal his love for Jesus? Jesus compares Simon's reception of Jesus to the woman's actions in verses 44 through 46. Simon didn't even extend Jesus the, the common courtesy of the minimum requirements of hospitality in that day and age. He didn't give Jesus a bowl of water to wash off his feet. Nor did he kiss him on the cheek, which is kind of somewhat analogous to kind of our handshake. Hey, how you doing? 
So he didn't, he didn't greet Simon. Uh, Simon didn't even greet Jesus in that way. The only conclusion that we're left with is that Simon was so concerned with himself and his own needs that he didn't even extend the most basic care to the most important guest in the world who has ever walked into his home. Contrast this to the woman who views Jesus as so precious that she will forgive his feet. She will kiss his feet, his dirty feet, over and over and over again. How are these two people so drastically different? Well, the difference is not found in their wealth, their biological sex, or their estimation in the eyes of the community. The difference is between these two people is rooted in their own understanding of their need for forgiveness. And it's rooted in their understanding of Jesus' power to forgive. That's the point of Jesus' moneylender parable there in verses 40 to 43. What accounts for the difference between the sinful woman and Simon's actions and attitude toward Jesus is rooted in their own recognition of what they have or don't have and what Jesus has. Simon loved little because he did not see his need to be forgiven. This woman loved much because she had been forgiven of much. What about you? If you were to place yourself in this story, who would you identify with? Whose shoes would you kind of fill? You you can't stand in Jesus' shoes. None of us can, because he's sinless. So you've got to pick Simon or this sinful woman. Now, none of us really want to identify with Simon. None of us really want to stand in his shoes. Uh, he, he kind of comes off looking pretty bad, doesn't he? And my guess is, is that if we're really honest with ourselves, that quite a few of us may not want to identify with the woman either. Here's the thing. If there's any bit of us that does not want to identify with the woman... And I think that may actually reveal we're more like Simon. If we are distancing ourselves from this woman, looking down upon her rather than up to her, then maybe we're standing in Simon's shoes. This woman shows us what it looks like to love Jesus because we've been forgiven by him. This woman, this sinner, shows us what it means to come to terms with your sin. And what it means to come to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Have you come to terms with the fact that over the course of your life, you have committed a multitude of sins against the living God? Have you come to terms with the fact that your sins have mounted up to the heavens? Have you come to terms with the fact that your sins are so innumerable that you cannot even remember them all? Probably can't even remember all of them from this past week. Have we come to terms with the fact that our sins deserve to be punished with a holy and eternal punishment because we have sinned against the holy and eternal God? So do you see what this woman sees in Jesus Christ? The person who has the power to pardon all of her sins. Because Jesus lived a sinless life, he could die in our place, being the substitute on our behalf. He died bearing God's holy and eternal wrath against our sin. That's what he did on the cross. 
because Jesus was raised from the grave three days after his death, we have been assured that God the Father has accepted his sacrifice on behalf of sinners. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to urge you to come to him today in repentance and faith. I want to urge you to believe that Jesus lived for you, the life that you have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God. Believe that he died the death that you deserve to die and believe that he was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. And I want to urge you to believe that what Jesus says to this sinful woman in verse 48, he says to you, hear and believe these words of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. And, and let us notice this about Jesus. He will not refuse or reject our love. He will not refuse and reject our love because he will not refuse or reject us. Do not let anything keep you from coming to Jesus. He did not turn this woman away. And he will not turn you away. In the words of, of one Christian hymn writer, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that he required is to feel your need of him. So, come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity, love, and power. Friend, if you would call out to Jesus in faith, he will respond in love and power and forgive you of all of your sins. And if you want to know more about what it means to give yourself to this Savior in love, to come to Jesus and be forgiven by him. And I want to encourage you to come and find me at the door. Speak with a friend or family member you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can come to understand this good news about Jesus that he forgives sinners like this sinful woman, like you, and like me. And here's what we need to know about our loving response to Jesus it is not just a one time expression of love for him. It is a life of love, a, a life of love so totally rearranged by him that his priorities become ours. That advancing the good news of this great and gracious king who forgives becomes our heart's greatest desire too. And this is where I want us to conclude. See, love looks like humbling ourselves at the feet of the king, regardless of what other people think. Love rejoices in the authority of this king to overturn death. And as we follow this king, love longs for the day when death will be fully and finally swallowed up in victory. Love delights to tell the world the true identity of Jesus, that the promised son has come. And love daily remembers the pardoning power of Christ our king. How much love for Jesus is in your heart? 
of how much have you been forgiven? Let's pray together.